This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kylie Reid. On her new novel, Come and Get It. Kylie Reid is the author of Such a Fun Age, which was a Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller and long-listed for the 2020 Booker Prize. Her writing has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Playboy, Guardian and others. And she's currently an assistant professor at the University of Michigan. And today we're here to talk about Kylie's latest novel, which is Come and Get It. Kylie, welcome to Little Athens. Thanks for having me along. First of all, then, can I get you to tell us how you would describe this novel? I would describe this novel as a dorm novel, and that's in direct response to the wonderful campus novels that exist in our in our literary brains. Of course, this novel occurs on a campus, but I think that this is distinct and that this is a novel that's not concerned with academics or competition in any kind of academic way at all. This is a novel about being alone and about buying things. This is a novel about consumption and the nightmare that it is that we deal with every day of what we buy and what that says about who we are. Um, On a more simplistic note, Come and Get It is about three women who come to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and they all are trying to get very different things. There's Agatha Paul. She's a visiting professor, and she's looking to get over a relationship. She's just had a breakup. There's Millie Cousins. She's an RA, which is a resident assistant. That's like a position that some students hold in their dorm floor as a bit of a leader, a student leader and a helper on the floor. And she's looking to be an adult. She wants to buy a house and have a real job when she graduates. And Kennedy is a transfer student who has a secret and she's looking to start over. So as you just mentioned, the book is is mostly set, the sort of, I guess, present day sections of the book. It's not in the present day. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you know what I mean? The sort of contemporary sections of the novel are set in the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. Um, so tell us why there and what it's like. Sure. I spent uh, a year exactly in Fayetteville, Arkansas from 2016 in August to August of 2017. It's Firstly, just a beautiful place. It's probably my favorite American city. It's in the Ozarks. It's very hilly. It has four true seasons. It's incredibly easy to live there. I really like college towns, but there's something very special about Fayetteville that that it's difficult to put into words. So I think the best words I have are 
are in the novel. Um, I remember when I was living there, I could leave to go have a drink or a night out with friends and I could put $10 in my pocket and I could know I would be fine for the evening. It's, it's that kind of place. There are tons of animals and little shops. And of course it's, you know, run by students. And I think that that atmosphere is very interesting to set in a novel. Agatha Paul is coming from Chicago and she's trying to get over her ex-girlfriend. And she's also looking to have a bit of a year that doesn't count. And I think it's really interesting when people and characters use places as like, a, this is a freebie. This place doesn't matter for some reason. Anything I do here doesn't matter the same way that it would in a quote unquote real city. And so I'm very interested in, in places like that. When I was researching for the novel, I interviewed a lot of people from different Southern states, and many of them had the same thing to say. They said, oh, Fayetteville, that's not the South. That's not really the South. And they said things like, you know, Clemson University and Auburn, that's the South, but, but Fayetteville's like something else. I think places that are a bit of a little pocket in themselves and not viewed under the umbrella, like the philosophy of the region are really interesting. And I am obviously very interested in liminal spaces from where you're working to where you're living to where you're living. So I think you've already answered this, but I was going to ask the novel is set in 2017. So why? A few reasons. I wanted to place the novel in a post-Trump era and not deal with the election um, having such a big effect on, on the people living there. But I also wanted it to mark the time that I lived there so that I could use the different places I knew of as perfectly as I could. In a college town, different businesses and establishes or establishments are turning over so quickly. And I was only there for a year. And I wanted to replicate the place as much as I could during the time that I was there. And I did not think I would take this long to write the second novel. But that ended up being very important to kind of crystallize that moment within the time. So we'll go through the um, three main characters that you described in the intro. So Millie, first of all, tell us something more about who she is. Sure. Millie Cousins is 24 years old. She is a second year senior and she is from Joplin, Missouri. Millie is incredibly responsible and cheery and she has a big sister energy about her, even though she's an only child. And she's very kind. She works her butt off and she definitely sees hustle as a main keystone of her personality and why she feels she's been successful thus far. Millie is a bit peculiarly unpolitical and keeps to herself. She's not extremely good at school, but she's very hospitable and responsible and organized, and that's gotten her very far. Millie, through the course of the novel, experiences the phenomenon of making new friends who are a bit mean and finding herself being a bit careless and mean as well. She's back at the university after having to take a year out. Um, so tell us, first of all, why she's done that and then why that sort of puts her, I guess, in a sort of different position to other people that are coming back to the university. Sure. So I'll start actually with her first year out of college. Most uh, students in the United States go straight into university if they're going to go. But Millie took a year off to earn in-state tuition at the University of Arkansas, which would be much more affordable for her. So she took a role as 
an innkeeper at a bed and breakfast, and she worked at a coffee shop as well. So she feels that that year has set her behind a bit because she's starting college a year later than most students are. And then during the end of her junior year, her mother, Glory, has an episode with her glaucoma that scares the family a bit. And Millie goes home to take care of her and make sure that she is okay. So when she's coming back into her final senior year, she's 24 years old, and she feels that she's far too old to experience college properly. And so she's very much looking toward the future and saying, okay, I'm going to use this year to work hard, save money, and buy a house at the end of this year. And and that, in her mind, will set her back on track in terms of being an adult. Tell us something about her relationship with the other students under her care. Millie is incredibly good at being a bit of a, a, a loose babysitter with students. She takes care of, you know, if they have any questions or if they need someone to talk to. And she always puts a sign on her door saying, I'll be right back in a minute if you need me. She's always carrying the RA duty phone on her just in case anyone has an emergency or gets locked out or anything. One thing that Millie contends with is that it's a very white space. And she herself, is her mother is black and her father is white. And Millie meets Peyton, who's one of her residents. And Peyton is the only other black student on her floor. And Peyton's a bit awkward. She's probably the opposite of Millie in terms of personality. She is not very friendly and and a, a bit cold. But Millie really wants to be the person who can be there for her, not just as an RA, but as the only other black student on the floor. Unfortunately for Millie, Peyton doesn't want anything to do with her. And so Millie tries to win her affections, but it doesn't go according to plan. And you've raised this already, but tell me something more about her her attitude to to money in particular. She works various jobs, as you said, and she's got this ambition to buy a house. So she's saving. She's got to make up the down payment of the house. And all of this seems, you know, very mature for somebody of her age, particularly when contrasted in the novel with some of the other students, which we'll get to later on. Right, right. Millie is quite ambitious in that area. There were a few books that really inspired the three main characters here. And for Millie, it was this book called Knocking the Hustle, The Turn in Black Neoliberal Politics by Lester K. Spence. This is a really beautiful book that's artistic and poetic, but also so true and just highlights things about the civil rights fight from Black Americans throughout the last 50 years. And there was a chapter that was really inspiring to me in terms of Millie. It takes place at a family and finances summit at a church, and there's a pastor who is encouraging the audience, say it with me, I am a millionaire in the making, and they're all chanting it, and there was something very haunting about it. There was something there in the margins of those pages where I found Millie and her belief that hustling and working hard would always be the thing that served her the most. That the things that she wanted, her hard work and dedication would be the thing that get to get her there. And Millie recognizes that students often mistreat her, that they don't really see her as a human being like everyone else. And she experiences racism, not just from strangers, but from her friends as well. But she's terrified of what her life would look like if she wasn't kind, if she didn't work hard. And that's where she starts out the novel. I'm not going to say where she ends in. 
And it's interesting what you just said about the book that, that influenced the character of Milliam. And maybe you'll tell us about the um, the ones for the other two characters as we go along. I want to move us on to, to sort of Kennedy and as a way of introducing her. Like I said, we will talk about the wider theme of the students and money, which is something, you know, a focus of the novel and a focus of Agatha comes the focus of Agatha's work. But to introduce us to Kennedy, it's particularly striking that, you know, you explicitly mentioned that she's... She has this opposite idea of money to Millie and that she is explicitly mentioned that she has like $5,000 worth of savings and has like no idea what to do with it. Whereas, you know, we obviously see Millie knows exactly what she wants. Yes, yes. Kennedy, Kennedy is coming into the University of Arkansas after a trauma that she's trying to get over and, and keep very hidden. With the three characters here, Millie is saving, saving, saving. Agatha is doing a bit of splurging. And Kennedy doesn't see that she has a relationship to money at all. She thinks that she's a bit immune to how money works around her. But when Kennedy becomes nervous and anxious and on the verge of a panic attack, she finds herself going to Target to browse the aisles and pick up a face mask or a cute little scrapbooking pennant. And that is what calms her down. Kennedy surrounds herself with stuff. Uh, the first time we see her, it's resident move-in day, and she has brought too much stuff to her dorm to the dismay of uh, one of her roommates, who Kennedy views as a very cool person who she'd love to be friends with. But Kennedy is in a place where she just lets her mom you know, dictate what she does, and her mom tries to make everything beautiful around her. But in doing that, she just layers and layers her life with stuff. And that's where Kennedy starts her year. You mentioned that she's she's transferred across to the University of Arkansas because of a trauma in her past, which we, we won't go into because, you know, that's something to discover in the book. But tell us something else about her background. Kennedy, oh man, she, I'm trying not to spoil anything as well. Kennedy comes from a large family. She lived in DeWitt, Iowa. She has five brothers and sisters and her father passed when she was young. Kennedy does what in the United States is called a sparkle sport. I won't say anything more on that. But through the novel, Kennedy has two roommates, Peyton, who we discussed earlier, and Tyler. Tyler was a character who, when looking at Kennedy, I thought, who would be the absolute worst roommate for Kennedy? And that's where Tyler came out. Tyler is very socially adept and has a lot of cultural cachet and a lot of big opinions and knows what to do and what's cool and what's not and loves dogs. And Kennedy does not know how to contend with this. The intensity that she has towards wanting to be Tyler's friend is the same that she has in being scared and intimidated by her. So Kennedy is constantly on guard for if she's making the right decision if her purchase was the right thing, if she said the right thing, if she took too long to say what she wanted to say, she's living in a strange two-dimensional world where she can't seem to get anything right. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kylie Reed, and we're talking about her new novel, Come and Get It. And Kylie, the third character then I want to look at in some detail, which is Agatha. She has, there's a tenuous connection between her and Kennedy, which again is not something we'll go into here, but um, tell us something about who Agatha is. Sure. So the way that I came upon Agatha, again, from a book, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. In the beginning, I knew that I wanted to write about young people and money. And what really set that off was discovering this book called Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. And it's written by two sociologists who did a five-year interview study where they interviewed students from the same residence hall in a Midwestern university from freshman year to beyond. And they mark how their pathways shaped their futures and their careers, as particularly um, in a socioeconomic standpoint. So reading that book put two ideas into my head. One was just to ask young people about how they spend their money. And two was just this really great premise of a really academic woman seeking information about money from young students. And that's really where Agatha Paul was formed. Agatha Paul is an assistant professor from DePaul University, and she's trying to write her third book, So she receives a fellowship at the University of Arkansas and after a breakup thinks that it would be a great place to go. Agatha starts her time in Arkansas thinking that she wants to write about weddings. Her first book was about funerals and grief. Her second one was about birthdays and coming of age. And she thinks weddings sound like a natural progression. But from the first chapter, after talking to some of the residents, she realizes that she's much more interested in how they spend their money, how they view money, and how they navigate finances in, in their own world. And so Agatha, in a bit of a hasty move, starts to unethically depict these women within articles for Teen Vogue. She has some of their approval, but not all of their approval. And she unfortunately gets into some unethical journalism practice. So tell us something about your own research then into talking to students before writing the novel. Sure. I began to interview students in 2019. And I'm not a sociologist, but I basically just did what I read about in these books. And 
ask students questions like, what does the word classy mean to you? Where do you get your money? What do your parents do? What do you do with your fun money? And people ask me all the time, how do you get people to talk to you about money? And I have to say it's quite easily. Students were very keen to tell me everything. They were hoping that their words would end up in my novel and they were a really great source of inspiration. After I knew a little bit more about what I wanted to do with the plot, I could direct my interviews in a more intentional way. So I ended up interviewing about 35 people or so from Starbucks managers to baton twirlers to people who lived in all of these locations, resident assistants, resident directors, um, optometrists, a lot of different people. These interviews were so helpful in just making sure that I had the world down correctly. But more than anything, and particularly with young people, I wanted to nail the little idiosyncrasies of the dialogue. And a lot of the important things that would come out of those interviews was in between the questions, the little starts and stops and the word choices and the things that would make students, no, 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 I don't want to say that. All of those things were so fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm very indebted to everyone who let me talk to them about their lives. Well, while we're here, then tell us something about the, the sort of trio of girls that Agatha interviews. You've already mentioned Tyler, but something about Casey and Jenna as well and, and how that work that you did sort of fed into creating those characters. Sure. So we have Tyler and she's a bit of a leader of the group. She is from Dallas, Texas. She is a hospitality major. She speaks a little bit of French and Tyler, I would, I would describe her as harsh. She has a really beautiful laugh that kind of mesmerizes a lot of the characters around her, but Tyler is incredibly harsh and believes that her opinion is the right one. And then we have uh, Casey and she is from Alabama. Casey is a bit of a academic and really cares about her grades and, and doing well in school. And she's very obsessed with thinking about what her mom would say in that situation. Her mom haunts her a bit from afar. And then we have Jenna, who is also from Texas. And Jenna is a bit blasé and cruel. Jenna likes to think of massive historical tragedies and compare them to her own life, which Agatha thinks is really fun. The three girls like each other very much, but they're hard on each other and they're constantly together having fun next to Kennedy's room, which depresses Kennedy to a great degree. Truly, sometimes in interviews, one little sentence will spark, you know, most of a character's personality. In terms of the three young women, there was something that was said to me in the very first interview that I did that went straight into the novel. I was asking a group of young women in their apartment about their jobs and what they do for, for money on campus. And one of the young women said, I work at my dad's dentist office, but obviously I don't do anything. And I said, what do you mean you don't do anything? She said, well, I'm not a dentist. She said, but my dad pays me and my brothers through the dentist's office. So I get like a practice paycheck. And I said, I'm so sorry, but that seems like fraud. <laughs> I feel like it seems a little fraudy. And she said, no, 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 it's cool. And the notion of a practice paycheck went straight into the novel. There was something so loaded about it in terms of what Millie was trying to do with her life and what these young women, how they treat money and who gets a practice paycheck and what that even means. There was something so pure and emblematic of the world that was a perfect catalyst. 
Yeah, so let's talk a bit more about the um, their sort of attitudes. This trio in particular's attitudes to money um, and their privilege, and I guess the sort of you know casual racism that comes out every now and then. It was incredibly important to me to portray these young women with fierce accuracy. And in my experience in the world, humans with similar values tend to flock together. And the racist or cruel things that they say do not ring as such for, you know, one another. I would say of the three of them, Casey is the most interested in etiquette and saying the right thing and doing the right thing. But that doesn't mean that she sees a problem with being around Tyler and Jenna, despite their their racist antics. Um, in the very first scene, Jenna is very cold and she goes and gets her sweater and she gets a blanket and wraps it around her head and she compares herself to a refugee. And Tyler says, look at the little Mexican baby. And they think this is hilarious. And Agatha is very blown away by this comparison. But this is just something that they say that they don't recognize as being offensive to anyone. And I really wanted to be true to how those little moments come out with an innocence from the people who are saying them, but also from people who can still be good friends to one another. I think all all too common, we read books where there's this sheen placed over someone who says the wrong thing, where that person is just painted as a villain and nothing they can do is correct. A professor of mine in graduate school talked about presenting every character in their full intelligence. And that doesn't mean that they don't say dumb things sometimes or make mistakes, but I wanted to make sure that I highlighted the great parts of these young women as well. Tyler goes off on how she believes in universal health care, and Jenna is very kind to her brother who has special needs. But these women have views that really attract Agatha to the worst parts of them, and she unfairly shares those parts. And can we go back to, to Agatha and her relationship that has just recently ended with the character Robin, um, whose work exists in a, a sort of precarity that causes friction in the relationship? Yes. Agatha and Robin were a couple for three years, and Robin was a professional dancer. Robin was also a few years younger than Agatha, and Robin is very attractive in a striking way. And from the very beginning of their relationship, it's almost as if they're bartering certain things. Robin barters her beauty a bit. Agatha barters her money and her financial stability in her apartment. And when Robin loses her job, they go into a bit of a turmoil that they can't pull themselves out of. Relationships in novels are often at the peak where you're seeing the biggest fight they've ever had. With Robin and Agatha, I wanted to pull back and be hauntingly accurate and show the argument that they're always having. That scene within a pair of knives that Agatha believes Robin is using incorrectly. And that's also within who pays for what at what time um, and what they can do together as a couple. Agatha and Robin, to me, represent an interesting piece of class solidarity in that while Robin doesn't have a lot of money, she very much fits in culturally with Agatha's class bracket. But of course, her finances do get in the way in ways that are kind of irreparable. And just quickly to end before I ask you to read a bit, we didn't talk about the book that 
influenced Kennedy's character. Yes. So there was there one? There was one. I My husband bought it and I stole it from his shelf and it became mine. There's a book called Monoculture, How One Story is Changing Everything. And it's written by F.S. Michaels. This is a really brilliant little book that I highlighted to death where F.S. Michaels details, she's speaking about capitalism, but she refers to it as the economic story, particularly in the last 40 to 60 years and how the story, the economic story is changing our lives and our relationships in a number of ways. She goes through different ways, such as community, education, um, creative expression, but more than anything, she highlights how capitalism presents us with so many choices that we feel a bit crippled by all of those choices. But when we look at ourselves as human beings, we say, I'm a rational human being. I'm going to choose the thing that fits me best. But she compares it to, you know, going to a really good Chinese food restaurant where the options are in the hundreds and you get the same thing every time because, you know, you like it, but that doesn't mean that you think it's the best thing for you. There was something about being crippled by choice that really inspired Kennedy for me and the way that Professor Michaels talks about knowing how you're doing as a human person in a capitalist society means looking at the person next to you and saying, well, am I where they are? Okay, well, that's how I can gear how well I'm doing. It's a wonderful book. I suggest anyone to read it. I wanted to portray the ideas within that book within a dorm setting and money kind of became friends for Kennedy. That was the currency that she just couldn't get a grip on. So to finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit? Sure. So I'm flexible with a theme for this month. Millie was standing as she spoke. I did a pool party theme and I did like a cactus succulent one too. She opened a folder to the work she'd done. Palm trees, sunglasses, and a pink inner tube. In another brown clip were hand-drawn saguaros and succulents in little brown pots. But if you want to do August, Millie said, we can totally use yours. Colette eyed her things, touched one with her hand. Then she sat back and did a slow nod. Okay, so I actually didn't make any of these, she said. So let's use yours for August and September. I'll just do October if that's cool. Millie nodded. She wondered what Colette had been doing during the three-hour decoration session the day prior. Okay, she said. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but I can tell that you're way more into this than I am. So just tell me what you want and I'll just do it. I'm good at math. I have nice handwriting. I'm a good sous chef. So just like put me to work. Millie scratched the space beneath her shoulder blade. Okay, well, if I get too bossy, just let me know. You won't. It's cool. Should I put names on these? Yeah, sure. Millie pulled out a chair. She began cutting out little cards that would go on the desk of each resident. Green slips of paper with the RA on duty phone number, a crisis hotline, the dorm address, and so on. Colette got to work on the resident's door decks. Millie wished she'd observed Colette's handwriting before she'd given up this task. But when she looked up, she was promptly relieved. Colette had written the name Morgan on a pink inner tube, and her handwriting really was quite nice. It was as if she were good at doing an accent. The letter's curves were feminine and round. Millie crossed her ankles. So where were you last year? Southgate, it was such ass, we hated it. You and Rylan? Yeah, I'm hoping this will be a lot more chill. It will be. Students here already have friends. Or they're on that housing scholarship. Or they're in a sorority. Which sounds annoying, but it's not because they're always out. Colette placed sunglasses reading Kira next to the side, holding the edges so the ink wouldn't smudge. I don't mind that. I'll be good as long as there's no freshman. And if I don't have to communicate with Joni. Millie laughed through her nose. Was Joni in Southgate with you? 
No, she wasn't. Thank God, Colette said. But we both worked at Clubhouse Fitness last summer and she was annoying for obvious reasons. But then, okay, so when the minimum wage changed from eight to 850, I made this presentation on how I should be getting 950 because I was killing it over there. I got like four old people to start taking Pilates, probably added years to their lives and they loved me, but whatever. Anyway, the management ate it up. They were all like, ooh, PowerPoint, look at this initiative. And then they gave me 916 an hour, which was dumb, but I was like, fine. But then Joni was like, how is that fair? I worked here longer than you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Kate, you worked here for like four months longer, but if you want to raise, then go ask, loser. And she was like, that's not the point. That's disrespectful. At this, Colette looked up. With the Sharpie in hand, she did that quick, listless motion for someone jerking off. And she was just a huge dick to me all summer. She'd be like, hey, Colette, the spa water needs ice. Like, ooh, cool. Thanks for telling me. Millie smiled. That's really dumb. I know. She's such a pill. She also got pissed because this one time, I don't even remember what I said, but I had always assumed she was gay because Colette lifted her shoulders. Like, fucking duh. And I said something about it, and she was like, what? Why would you say that? And I was like, whoa, my bad, but I'm gay, so chill out. But yeah, when I saw her name on the dorm list, I was like, wow, I'm going to jail this year. But then I asked Millie who I was paired with, and I was like, okay, fine. She seems normal. At this, Millie experienced what she knew was a surplus of flattery and felt like an adolescent intrigue at learning that Colette was gay in order to not draw attention to Colette's gayness, something she hadn't considered one way or the other. Millie picked up another sheet of cards. So I've been talking to Kylie Reed. We've been talking about her new novel, Come and Get It, which is out now in the UK from Bloomsbury. Kylie, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.